Hey, what's up, Jordan? I hope you're enjoying the March madness that we're experiencing here. It's actually been a pretty mad tournament with a lot of twists and turns, a lot of higher seeds going down, a lot of lower seeds that are moving on. In fact, it's a uh, pretty eccentric grouping, this sweet 16 round that we are about to experience here at the time of this podcast episode recording. So the pregame topic, the warm-up, if you will, uh, what is your favorite story thus far in the men's NCAA tournament? Or if you have a story from the women's side that you would rather use uh, and exalt as uh, your favorite story here thus far in March Madness? Yeah, I think the the women's tournament sparks a a bigger conversation, right? And I think we're going to get into it a little bit later. So I'll I'll save... I'll save my comments on the women's tournament coming up for a, a little later in the podcast. It's a tease, as they call in the biz. Uh, I'm going to go with Oral Roberts. I mean, how, it's the 15 seed, right? The, the school out of Tulsa. Like, I don't know how many people even know where that school is still, even though they've won two games in the NCAA tournament. They're just the second number 15 seed to make the Sweet 16. Uh, nobody seeded 13 or lower has ever won a Sweet 16 game and, and advanced beyond that. So we'll, we'll see if they can if they can spring another upset. But I mean, they're they're this they're the ultimate Cinderella. Like that is the absolute definition of a Cinderella, and they're gonna keep it going. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if they can keep the magic going. They play Arkansas. They played them kind of tough back in December. I think it was a game up until like the last five minutes or so. They only lost by eleven or something like that. So uh, it's got to be Oral Roberts. They're not quite as flashy as Dunk City was. The other fifteen seed, Florida Gulf Coast. Everybody remembers that Andy Enfield and all those guys throwing lobs all over the place. Um, but this, this team, they, they seem kind of solid. It's such a quirky year with all the seeding, like the NCAA tournament selection committee, right? They had the tough job of trying to figure out all these teams and didn't play non-conference games, but it's, it's gotta be ORU. Yeah. I think when you look at like Loyola, Chicago, they probably had no business being an eight seed to start this tournament. There were some seeding issues that ended up probably biting some of the big name brand programs, uh, in the backside, right? Uh, it's funny because I happened to catch a piece of Josh Pacheco's radio show on ESPN Honolulu yesterday, and he was talking about how he felt like the madness in this year's NCAA tournament is sort of already gone. Like, there is no madness in March Madness anymore. And his thinking was that it's because Gonzaga in no way is being debated as to whether or not they can win a championship. And uh, I got to intervene here with my boy Josh uh, in, in the fact that number one overall seed, like there's never a question whether the number one overall seed can win a championship. If he's trying to say that there are no real threats to Gonzaga, that's maybe another way to describe the argument that he might be trying to make. Uh, but I would also disagree and say this has been one of the craziest tournaments that we've seen in recent memory. And it's probably directly related to the fact that it was a COVID season and you had all of these discontinuations and this very disjointed nature to the year. Uh, and I think that for me as a basketball fan, I, I welcome that. I welcome the unpredictability. I welcome the madness. That's what this whole tournament is predicated upon. Uh, and for me, the best story has been uh, the prevalence of Western region programs. Look at the Pac-12, will you? Or as Charles Barkley says, the Pac-10. Look at the fact that they're 9-1 in this tournament. You have four Pac-12 teams in the Sweet 16. And then you look at the Big Ten, which put nine teams into the tournament, and they just got slaughtered. Uh, so to me, that's the coolest story. You have the Pac-12 represented. You have Gonzaga in the Western region, which is the number one overall seed. And it's like, yeah, Western region basketball representing here so far. Uh, that to me is pretty mad. 
Yeah, I think that's that's the story, right? It's the, it's the two Oregon schools, the two L.A. schools. Everybody likes to kind of dump on the Pac-12. What do you mean the madness is gone? Come on. <laughs> you got two 11 seeds, a 12 seed, and a 15 seed. That's a quarter of the Sweet 16. I think a couple of those teams have a legit shot to, to make a run, whether it's UCLA, you know, whether it's Syracuse. Like, either of those two teams could be in the Final Four, in my opinion, in, as they break this thing down, so – yeah, no, it's the, the madness. The magic is still there. Just look at everybody's brackets. They all are just absolute shambles right now. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is an embodiment of just how madness-oriented March Madness can be. Uh, the number of chicken scratch marks and red <laughs> ink that's on your bracket, that's for sure. Yeah, hey, got to call uh, my guy Josh Pacheco out when he makes a, a, a claim like that. Also, he followed it up like a minute later by saying that he's actually picking Oral Roberts to advance to the Elite Eight. So nice. I'm like, well, nice. that would be some madness that you're believing in. Never here, been right? done. I like That's it. Right. That's Golden right. Golden Eagles yeah. all the way. All right. Well, let's welcome you to another episode of the podcast. Let's talk sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. And we're going to be talking a little prep football here coming up with St. Louis Crusaders head football coach Ron Lee took over, sort of swapped places, if you will. As far as the uh, staff goes with his brother, Cal Lee, Ron, now the head coach. Of course, the season was wiped out by COVID, but the recent announcement has been made that there are going to be a group of ILH football programs who are going to go ahead and play a series of games, and that includes St. Louis. So we'll talk about the ramifications of that with Crusader head coach, Ron Lee. Looking forward to that, Jordan. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. The, the fact that there might actually be some football, you know, even if it's sort of unsanctioned or, or sort of outside the realm of, of normal football. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of folks that are, that are pretty excited. And uh, Ron's been around for a long time, right? He, he's seen a lot of iterations of, of whatever high school football and all the twists and turns that it has taken in the 808. So it'll be good to catch up with Coach. All right. Well, let's get to our game time. And our first topic, the NCAA tournament once again. But this time we're going to go into a much sort of deeper and, and wider situation surrounding March Madness, and that is what has been now the much-discussed inequality between the men's and women's NCAA tournament in terms of the execution on the part of the NCAA and the governing bodies surrounding this event. Sedona Prince of Oregon was actually the first one to really send this thing mainstream when she took the social media to expose the inequity in facilities and resources for the women's NCAA attorney compared to the men. And her primary example was the weight, quote unquote, room. And you saw images of the men's one and it is just magnificent. It is in this huge area, like a convention center room, ample space, ample equipment for anybody to get whatever they need done here over the course of the NCAA tournament. Whereas the women's weight room, again, using air quotes, according to Sedona Prince, she pointed it out, was basically just like one rack of dumbbells. And they had all of this empty, unused space that they could have been applying in a very similar fashion. Now, that's just among some of the complaints and criticism about the inequity, right? Even in terms of TV time slots, uh, ESPNU or ESPN2, and certainly not in the prime time windows. Those are among the list of concerns and complaints that are coming from people who are affiliated with the women's tournament. Now, the mainstream response uh, has been, well, the men draw the greater ratings and thus generate the greater amount of money. And so that's kind of been the comeback, right? That's prevalent on social media, while some have argued that the women aren't given a fair shake to establish or cultivate a greater following because, as mentioned, they aren't marketed the same way. They don't have the same branding benefit of March Madness. It's not applied to the women's tournament as freely as it is 
to the men, the time slots that we're talking about on TV, availability, all of that stuff. So uh, when you look at this issue, do you find it a valid argument on the part of those who are trying to advocate for the women's tournament to be put on a more even standing in terms of its execution and setup as the men? Well, yeah, I think it's, it's a more than valid argument. And, and you know, I, you hear that often, right? It's like, oh, well, the, the men's game, it's, it's simple dollars and cents, right? It, it draws more. They make more money. The thing is, the NCAA reminds us all the time, this isn't professional sports. It's amateur sports, right? The NCAA themselves like to remind us of that all the time. That's their argument, especially as we get into the name, image, and likeness thing, as that continues advancing through the legal channels, and that becomes, I think, more and more of a reality. And so that negates any argument about ratings and money because that, that it's amateur sports, right? The NCAA claims it as such to begin with. And so legally, right, Title IX and all the other legislation that has come down over the years – Shout out to Patsy Mink. Like, you, you have to have it evenly. That's, there's no question about it. And I think it's just the fact that it was an afterthought for the NCAA tells you everything you need to know. It's just evidence that it isn't part of sort of the culture within the NCAA office that this isn't front of mind. Like, the fact that this absolutely fell through the cracks just shows you what they prioritize and what is going on thought process wise. And I think you got to remember, right in normal years in non COVID years, the first two rounds of the women's tournament are almost held exclusively on campus, right? Teams that are higher seats host first and second round games, unlike the men's tournament, which is all at neutral site venues. And so you've got the infrastructure, right? Schools have weight rooms, schools have training rooms, schools have support staff already built in. You don't have to build it at a convention center in San Antonio or Indianapolis like they did with the men's team or at the women's team where they just dropped off something from like sports authority, you know? And so that just shows you that they, they, a lot of this stuff is taken for granted. A lot of this stuff is just not even within the consciousness of the NCAA. And I think just as a further example of how far we need to go and just how poor, you know, institutions as big as the NCAA are at sort of, following through on the on the talk right they, they don't walk the walk in, in a lot of these senses and you know you can talk about even some of the gyms they're playing in right I think one of the venues in San Antonio is like a division two 3,000 seat gymnasium and I get it they're not really allowing fans at least not full capacity but you know it's a lot different than like assembly hall or you know where the Pacers play or you know some of these bigger venues in Indianapolis so it's just a shame. I got, you know, you got to shout out Sedona Prince. She balled out yesterday in the second round of the NCAA tournament. Not only is she bringing all this awareness, but she dropped 22 with five boards, four blocks and two steals as the Ducks also advanced to the Sweet 16 like their men counterparts uh, in a second round upset of Georgia. So she's she's walking the walk after backing it up. Uh, yeah, it's just, it just shows you that it's just they, they have no clue. And it's just a, a, a real shame, really, for the NCAA. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I don't think anybody would deny the concept that the men's game is, you know, generally speaking, a little more dynamic in nature, right? I mean, you're talking about perhaps a greater amount of, of athleticism game-wide, uh, but I think that there is a valid argument to be made, and I even saw Savannah Ryer, former Rainbow Wahine basketball player, making this point on Twitter, where, hey, look when you're talking about the marketing and the revenue generation and all of that stuff as it pertains to the men's tournament, well, give the women's tournament an opportunity to market itself in that same way and benefit from some of that. I think a great case in point 
is a game that I'm super excited about. Like one of the basketball games that I'm most excited about pro or college here this weekend is the matchup between Iowa and UConn on the women's side. And you have UConn's Paige Beckers going up against Iowa's Caitlin Clark, two of the most phenomenal freshmen in the game, two of the most phenomenal freshmen we've seen in a long time in college basketball. And I can't wait to see that game. And that's an example to me of a matchup of a couple of individual players who absolutely can market this game, this women's basketball version of the tournament to the masses and establish intrigue and establish interest. Like there are stories, there are players, there are teams and programs that I think can draw, uh, but we'll never know as long as they are continued to be put sort of on the back burner and say, all right, that's the women's tournament. It's not the March Madness. Uh, and so it's sort of, prevents it's almost like a self-sabotage it prevents the tournament from garnering the interest that it may garner because nobody's given it a chance to garner that interest in the first place i i, I am totally on board with that you know you gotta you gotta broadcast it to the masses make it a a marquee event right the the, the television partners are good at that uh you know if the ncaa can't get it done itself and and espn will promote that a bit and and, you know, I mean, you, you look at Buchers and Clark, man, they, they, they could fill it up. I mean, Clark outscored Kentucky. Kentucky, who's a four <laughs> seed in the second round by herself in the first half of that second round game. She had 24. Kentucky had 22. Again, that was a four seed. It wasn't like, you know, some 16 seed or something like that. Unbelievable. Buchers is averaging, what, like 22 a game in the first two. Um, no, Beckers is uh, the, the first two rounds uh, of the NCAA tournament. Clark's averaging like 28 or something. <laughs> she had 35 against Kentucky. So, yeah, they, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to watch these games, but it, it's, it's a little hard when you kind of got to go search them out, right? It's not readily available where it's like, hey, what, you, you know exactly what time, what channel they're playing on. Um, don't make it so hard. Don't make it so hard to go find this talent. All right, we switch over to the Diamond and the UH baseball team coming off of a series win against Long Beach State. They took three of four from the dirtbags at Les Murakami Stadium, uh, Hawaii ranked 30th according to collegiate baseball uh, they're off to a positive start in the big west conference they're on the road here this week uh, yet to play here at the time of this recording uh, going to uc irvine uh, but you look at this rainbow team and although you know a couple of their series opponents were division two opponents in hawaii pacific and hawaii hilo they started the year taking one of three uh, against arizona state on the road arizona state nationally ranked and then they went three of four here to open the big west conference in a very crazy series they were gifted the first game based on a couple of back-to-back -back fielding errors by long beach state at the end of that first night uh, but that said they went on to win the series so how good is this rainbow baseball team you think jordan I don't know yet. I, I think, you know, that's kind of the cop-out answer. But I, I don't know if we really know because of the nature of the opponent. Obviously, winning one of three at Arizona State, which is still ranked in the top 20 by a lot of the publications in the country, was a good indication to start. How do you read into the UH Hilo and HPU series, right? And, and this was going to be a big test. Long Beach State coming off a, a, an abbreviated but very promising season last year coming in this season, hadn't played any non-conference games, and it showed, right? It, it really showed. And so you're getting an opponent who is a bit rusty at the end of the day. And those errors, very fortuitous, very timely, right? That could have easily been a series that finished 2-2, and maybe we're having a little bit of a different tune here. Or maybe even goes the other way, right? If a couple of those errors don't go the other way. I think the, the encouraging thing for the University of Hawaii, the pitching looked pretty good right? Whether it was Davenport on night one, whether it was Halemanu early on Saturday, yeah. 
the, the pitching, I think, was the most encouraging output of any of the sort of the units on that team because we had seen them, you know, pitch fairly well, but against the team of the caliber of Long Beach State, we'll find out a lot the next couple of weeks at Irvine for the four-game set and then back home against Santa Barbara. And if they go five and three in those two games and come out, what would that make them nine and four after three weeks of conference play? Then I, then I think we'll have a really good sense of, hey, this team can contend. And obviously you've got the likes of Fullerton and whatnot waiting on the back end of the schedule. But yeah, I, I still think the verdict in the, the jury is out. We, we, we haven't quite got a verdict on how good we should expect this team to be just yet. Uh, but it's promising. Boy, it's promising early on. Yeah, uh, 11-3 and three to start the season. Uh, not too shabby, obviously. 3-1 and one to start Big West Conference play. Anytime you beat Long Beach State, it's a big deal. First time they've done that since 2015. I just think this is a scrappy bunch. You talk about the pitching, and it's always great to have that clear-cut number one ace in the rotation, right? And it is clearly Aaron Davenport, whose curveball is, is something to behold. He's become appointment television. You run to the TV to see this guy pitch. Uh, you look forward to it each and every week. And so you have that. And as you mentioned, Kate Halemano with a bit of a coming-out party in many ways, his longest start in his young UH career going eight plus uh, in that second game against Long Beach State and shutting them out and, and UH ending up winning that game one nothing. But they're they're scrappy, right? You got guys like Cole Kaler and Scotty Scott and Tyler Best who appear to be who to have been made in some kind of like baseball player factory. And then you have the local boy faction, right? 18 Hawaii high school products on this roster. And they're as scrappy as they come, right? Guys like Stone Meow and Dallas Duarte, and Sofia villaruz Moai. I mean, these are guys who just appear to be fearless. They, 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 they play hard. They, there's, there's nothing that really uh, shakes them. They seem to have sort of an infallible confidence about them. And so I think it all adds up to this is a team that's going to compete. And you're right. We'll learn more about them. They're playing UC Irvine this week. They come back to play UC Santa Barbara. And so you're talking about the three teams in Long Beach, UC Irvine, and Santa Barbara who were picked to finish in the top three in the preseason poll of the Big West Conference. So it is a front-loaded schedule, certainly, for the Rainbows. And so I think you're saying the verdict is out. We'll learn a little bit more about this team. That may happen here over the course of the next two weeks. Now, something that may happen in the not-too-distant future for the Rainbow Baseball team and other UH sports is maybe the welcoming back of fans in some form. The Big West Conference announced recently they are removing the league-wide ban on spectators at sporting events, leaving the decision up to the individual member institutions. How important is it for UH, you think, to allow fans back into the stands in some capacity soon? Yeah, it's important for a couple of reasons, right? Not, none the least is revenue. <laughs> like any, any sort of revenue stream would be nice for the University of Hawaii and, and really any athletic institution, as, as we know how much of a hit that those programs have taken over the course of this pandemic. It won't be a lot, right? Because you're not going to be able to pack the Lesmore Comedy Stadium. You're not going to be able to pack Stan Sheriff Center, you know, if you, if you do allow fans back in. But but it is something. And, and I think even more so than that is, is building some momentum into hopefully what will be a more normal fall. But especially for a couple of programs, right? And, and, and obviously, you, you talk about programs like Rainbow Wahine Softball, but they don't really charge admission uh, to get in. But what the baseball team is doing, we just talked about them, right? They, they've gotten off to a really promising start. And then you've got the the men's volleyball program. They're number one team in the country. We know how electric that building can get when that team is on the Terraflex there at the arena. And so, you know, they, they got another legit shot to, to contend, to get into a national championship game. They're hosting the Big West Conference tournament. 
you know, in a month and a half's time or whatever it is. Uh, and so if you can get some fans, right, I don't, I don't, as vaccinations pick up, you've seen some places get creative, you know, like the Miami Heat have like a, a vaccination section. And so maybe you, you allow vaccinated folks in only or something like that, right, as, as more and more people and, and you get the passports and all these kind of things that they're talking about for travel. Maybe you can do something similar to get folks in the arena or into Stan Scherf Center, which I would imagine, or excuse me, into Les Murakami Stadium, which I would imagine is maybe a little easier because it's an outdoor venue and whatnot but yeah if you can get some fans in there right it doesn't take a lot we know hawaii fans it doesn't take a lot for them to get loud for them to get supportive maybe annoying to the other team uh some of the sports that we've seen and so just something right just something to bring a bit of that atmosphere can go a long way i think from a momentum standpoint for 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 a few of those programs that have shown a bit already and then maybe you know build up to the fall for hawaii obviously any generation of greater amounts of revenue is necessary right for a team that's going to be, frankly, taking a hit, especially when it comes to football because of the whole Aloha Stadium fiasco. And we talked a little bit about it. It's beyond just that very sort of immediate future and health financially and also long-term in terms of the connection to the fan base. Um, you know, fans tend to get into rituals and habits, and the longer fans are away from these games, uh, perhaps the more used to being away from these games they get. And so I think that's the concern for David Matlin, the athletics director at UH, and certainly David Lassner, the president, is you're trying to hang on to that fan base. You're trying to maintain that firm connection, right? So that's what the importance of sports is on behalf of any real institution is it's the primary conduit to the community. It is what can ingratiate an institution to the community that surrounds it and thus supports it. Uh, and so I think that's the importance, that's, that's the tangible, almost connective tissue of it. Uh, I talked recently with Sam Spangler for a KHON2 news story, and he was asking me about this very thing. And uh, I said, you know, it's almost like a, a long distance relationship, right? There can still be affection, but obviously it's, it's much more intensified and it's much more beneficial when you're right there in person, establishing that more tangible level of a relationship. And so uh, I think that's, you know, on a little bit more of an existential type of uh, plane, I think that's the concern for UH uh, in many ways when it comes to welcoming the fans back in some form. Obviously it benefits them to be able to somehow do that sooner rather than later, but it depends on the protocols and obviously the uh, health and safety measures uh, that are being applied uh, citywide and statewide. All right, we switch over to the NBA. And, uh, well, the NBA trade deadline at the time of this recording is uh, come and gone. And there were some interesting moves for sure. You have Aaron Gordon on what seems to be a wholesale maneuver by the Orlando Magic. He's going from the Magic to the Nuggets. Pretty good pickup there. You have Nikola Vucevic going to your Bulls from those Orlando Magic. Uh, also, the Bulls said to have been pursuing Lonzo Ball. We didn't see that materialize. Uh, but you have Rajon Rondo going to the Clippers. That seems to be a big one, although Lou Williams then gets bounced going back to Atlanta. Uh, so let's talk about some of these trades. Anything that stands out in your mind? Yeah, the, the Rondo for Lou Williams trade, I think, catches a lot of people's attention. And, and obviously, you know, Vucevic going to the Bulls, um, Aaron Gordon going to Denver. The Bulls apparently fancy themselves as like a contender coming up here. You know, Lonzo Ball is going to stay put, but they, they went on and got Vucevic. I kind of like the trade. I don't think it's going to pay immediate dividends for them. Uh, but but the the Rondo for for Lou Williams, because the, the Clippers have sort of been stuck there, right? They're, they're in the top three, four of the West, and obviously top three now with the Lakers falling down a little bit. 
But, you know, do they have enough, right? It wasn't enough last year. They kind of ran it back with the same roster. They've been kind of spinning the tires. They added Batum. You know, they, they've, they've been trying to figure out a way after trading a lot of their capital, draft capital, that is, obviously, when they got um, Paul George in the trade front with Oklahoma City. And so it was like, okay, what are they going to do? What can they do really to improve their chances come playoff time? Because that's what it's all going to be, right? When they're going to go up against Utah and maybe Phoenix and, and L.A. And, and, and Denver. And so what, what was it going to be? There wasn't really a move out there where you could land a marquee type guy, right? They couldn't get Lowry. They couldn't get some of these other high-priced guys. And so – you go get playoff Rondo. Like, who cares what his numbers were in Atlanta? That was a terrible fit, by the way. Almost anybody's a terrible fit in Atlanta, kind of playing alongside Trey Young, where he's just hoisted. But you just shelve him to the playoffs, and all of a sudden, the Clippers become that much more intriguing. The dude was like hitting threes with regularity for the Lakers last year in the bubble. I don't know if he can bubble that up and recreate it with the Clippers, but it's going to be very, very interesting to me to see if that pays off because you lose a lot with Lou Williams, right? The scoring that he gives you off the bench, but was that necessary in the playoffs? I don't know. Was it, was it reliable in the playoffs? Not as much as it has been in the regular season, but Rondo is a guy that can maybe tip the scales. The Aaron Gordon thing to Denver is going to be really interesting. That is a really athletic group around Nikolai Jokic, and he will get a lot of cuts to the basket. He will get a lot of open looks. Uh, and then the Victor Oladipo trade that comes across late, which not for much, according to Shams, that, that Miami gets. Uh, Oladipo, to add to that group, uh, a surging Miami team that has slowly worked their way up the Eastern Conference standings. All they give up is Avery Badley, Kelly Olenek, and like a second-round pick or something like that. Uh, so that's another one that's, that, that could make Miami much more of a threat in the top half of the East. Yeah, what's interesting is at these trade deadlines, you often see a play for point guards from teams that are in contention, right? It's almost as if they feel like, all right, that's the thing that's going to solidify us the most is we get a proven game manager, a, a, a proven entity at that point guard position as far as leadership is concerned to kind of get us over that playoff hump. That's what makes these point guards so valuable. That's why Kyle Lowry was being tossed around so heavily as a target up to the trade deadline. I think that's what makes the Clippers move to get Rajon Rondo so significant is they bolster themselves in terms of the leadership, the tenacity, and they give themselves a point guard that frankly come playoff time when you need somebody that can be capable with the ball that can kind of, you know, not wilt under the pressure of down the stretch game time in the playoffs when that is the, you know, highest level of basketball that we know on this planet. You know, who's the de facto leader for that team at that spot? It's Pat Beverly. And all due respect to Pat Bev and his tenacity as a defender and the energy that he brings, but, you know, he's not going to be a leader down the stretch like Rajon Rondo can possibly be. We'll see what he has left, uh, but I do think even though they give up Lou Williams uh, to carve out that spot for Rajon Rondo, we saw how important he was for the Lakers in the bubble, and I think he can bring that kind of thing to the Clippers and take some of the pressure off of guys certainly like Pat Beverly at that position, but even Paul George, who let's be honest, probably could use a little bit of that extra fire behind him uh, down the stretch in playoff games as well. Now, all of these moves are being made, interestingly enough, around what was the prohibitive favor going into the season to win the championship, the Los Angeles Lakers. But LeBron James is now out injured, which is just really weird anytime that happens because he seems so superhuman. But a high ankle sprain, he's going to miss several weeks, reportedly. You still have Anthony Davis out. Uh, with that calf strain, which is always kind of a weird thing, especially coming off of what happened with Kevin Durant a couple of years ago. Uh, and so how 
concerned should you be if you were a Lakers fan? Is it panic time for the Lakers who didn't exactly make any kind of brow-raising move here at the trade deadline? Yeah, I think the fact that they didn't pull off a trade for, for Kyle Lowry or, or anybody else, and reports were that they didn't want to part with Taylor Horton Tucker. I would have made the deal if, if that was for Kyle Lowry for that group. Um, but I think since they didn't make the move, the panic meter goes up a little bit, right? Because you don't know exactly how long those guys are going to be out. They'll be fine once they get LeBron back and then obviously once they get AD back. But the fact that, you know, basically only three losses separate like three and eight the seeds in the Western Conference. And so you lose a couple of games and all of a sudden you're in the playing round. And so the Lakers obviously want to avoid that, get a little more rest, you, you get a little bit more certainty. But it's not full-on panic or anything like that. But it, it, the margin of error isn't very big. And so you need those guys back sooner rather than later, especially since they didn't get any help at the deadline. I don't think that it was worth it to part with possibly Dennis Schroeder and Taylor Horton Tucker to get Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry's 34 years old. He may be that point guard commodity that we were just talking about, so valuable, especially in the playoffs. But, you know, I've just never really been a fan of his style of game. He plays for the whistle oftentimes. And, you know, he does take charges. But I think to get rid of a guy like Dennis Schroeder, who just at this point is so much more in his prime, so much more dynamic. Uh, obviously, he's at the end of his contract. And so it's not as though it's a guarantee that he's going to stick around with the Lakers but still I think that would be a greater long-term commodity to have and I think Taylor Horton Tucker is going to be a ball player like he's showing signs and flashes of brilliance so uh, I think if I'm the Lakers yeah it's scary Uh, you realize just how valuable LeBron actually is especially when you compound that with the fact that uh, Anthony Davis is still out Uh, but yeah I think you just you just hold firm you hope that they come back soon and you know when they do hopefully you've gotten that much more experience uh, to prime guys like Kuzma and Taylor Horton Tucker and this younger, lesser experienced group down the home stretch of the season. All right, time now for the Domino's Hawaii main topping. It is our conversation with St. Louis football coach Ron Lee. We're going to have some ILH football, even though they will not be sanctioned ILH games. We're going to see some of these players taking the field, and Ron Lee is going to share his thoughts about that right now. What's up, Coach? How's it going? Long time, no talk. We haven't talked story in a while. Uh, obviously, COVID has gotten in the way of everyday operations for everybody. I just uh, want to say it's good to see you. You look good. How you been? Oh, been uh, been busy trying to get to keep our kids active. You know, we started working out, I would say, in the last, uh, thank, thank goodness for Dr. Medeiros and the administration for letting us at least work out. And uh, we've been we've been working out now for all oh, about two and a half months, oh, wow. twice a week, and we meet on uh, we practice on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we meet on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. But what I what's been happening is it's not so much just football, but it's the kids being able to get out there and work out and do things and meet their friends and. You know, by by wearing masks and and, uh, and uh, social distancing and all of that stuff, and you know, so far, knock on wood, we've been really fortunate that we were able. We didn't have any cases where we had to shut down, and not just football, but at St. Louis, we have the baseball team going. I mean, full load, varsity JV's intermediate. We had a we just got done with basketball club. And St. Louis went 13 and 0. They had 13 games, and uh, both of Division One and Two. So 
it's it's like normal at St. Louis as far as the kids working out. And I, I see how happy they are. I feel sorry for the other schools that haven't done anything and what they've missed out. Our kids are, are having fun as normal as can be. So it's working out great for us. Yeah, that's kind of at the heart of this, right? I mean, we'll get into the football-specific aspects of it with some of these ILH football games being scheduled. But at the end of the day, we're talking about extracurricular activities for young people to give them a release, right? To give them uh, another place, another outlet uh, to express themselves outside of the classroom and and obviously going through the rigors of of dealing with COVID like we all have. Uh, That's sort of the most important part of this whole thing, right? It is, and and to see the kids, I went to almost every basketball game, and you know, it, the others, the, they were all club teams besides uh, St. Louis. But uh, Dan Hale did a heck of a job of, of organizing that, and they went through the whole season. Uh, like I said, thirteen games. That's not counting the the division two. So it was a normal situation. There were no fans, but the kids got to compete and practice and, and do all that stuff. And then I see it with the baseball. They got three levels going. And, you know, we, we have to work out the facilities. And then football, we, we're going with almost 100 kids. And uh, we, we keep our distancing. But I see it in the kids. I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's well, it's needed. And I don't know how these other schools can go without it. What, what it does to these, these young guys. So we, we're still going, and hopefully we can get through this, our last scrimmage against, uh, against Kamehameha is May 8th. So we're going to go about another month of this. Yeah, so uh, let's, let's sort of talk about that, right? The big announcement that uh, there will be some form of ILH football is not going to be sanctioned by the league, but you guys are basically going to be hosting uh, or holding scrimmages, playing one another, Punahou, Kamehameha involved. There might be some other schools that try to get in on the mix in similar types of competition as well on the football field. Uh, how did this come together, and, and how hard was it to put this together? Well, when the ILH committee uh, uh, against us having a, a ILH league, we decided to go into look into these schools willing to, you know, scrimmage at least at least go against each other like a club deal. And the administration on, on all of these, uh, the open division schools agreed to or allow us to do this. So then we worked it out with the athletic directors and, uh, and coaches about when we can. We're following kind of the same format that we do during the summer, where we, we, we have a conditioning period for at least a month, and then we uh, the, we put on helmets for a week. Then we start with pads and contact, and that's kind of the schedule we keep in now. That's why our first scrimmage is not till the, the 17th, where we play against uh, Kamehameha at their field. And then uh, on the uh, first, May 1st, it's Punahou, and then we play Kamehameha again. So we'll have We'll have three scrimmages uh, among uh, among the ILH, which is really I think important, and it gives uh, Kano, it gives the uh, seniors 
the seniors, I feel so sorry for because they, they didn't have a season, number one. Number two, they didn't get a chance for the colleges for recruitment. And this is really helpful because we film all of our practices. And, and of course, we'll do that with the scrimmages so that the kids can get some highlight things and see what they can get from these colleges. They can't, the colleges can't even come out yet till probably April or maybe even May. So hopefully they, they'll, they'll be able to see us at least practice and try to help some of our seniors. Hey, Coach, how, um, how adaptive have the kids been in sort of, you know, doing all of the, the necessary things to, to make sure that you guys can keep practicing and getting to the point where you can scrimmage? I mean, I can't, it can't be easy for everybody, but, you know, for the kids to, to have to make sure they got the mask and all this kind of stuff, uh, uh, how much of a challenge or not maybe has it been uh, to get everybody on board? Yeah, it is a, a big challenge keeping the mask, the distancing. So far, just with helmets, and, and we even have the kids wear masks uh, and try to keep the distancing. But they know they realize, we emphasize, that they really need to take care of themselves and, and wear their masks. Wash. We have even coaches that go around and with the sanitizers, washing their hands, wiping the balls down. Because if, if somebody gets uh, test positive, then we got to shut down. So we've been really fortunate, and the kids understand that. But we haven't put on pads yet where we have content. So that's, that's going to be another challenge. We don't, uh, we're not going to be using our lockers. We'll, we'll unload our equipment outside and, and have uh, uh, coaches that will stack these things in the locker room and we will fog the equipment uh, uh, overnight, you know, and, and do it that way. But that's really a challenge, uh, trying, to, trying to keep the distancing and, and that type of thing, and practice and get better. But the kids are so happy to be allowed out there and, and practicing. And our kids, they, and, and most kids, they, they, they enjoy football and, and uh, they can't wait to put the pads on, but they have to, they understand that they need to follow the rules and, and, and take care of themselves. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds like quite the operation and, and a lot of helping hands to, to make sure it goes off. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned the, the other two open division schools, Punahou, Kamehameha. Uh, you know, we, we see some of the, the other public school kids sort of like, doing club type of deals they're working out at parks maybe not on campus uh you, you mentioned the the basketball program at st louis scheduled a lot of you know games against club teams and things like that and and there'd been talk of some of that in football it, it, do you see that as a as a viable possibility a likelihood at all that you know there are club teams that could get involved in some of this competition well you know i i was contacted by a couple uh, club teams that, that went to the mainland and uh return and they they want to scrimmage so we're looking into that possibly we have an open date on the 10th a weekend on the of the 10th and and the uh 20 uh 24th that we have an open date that we might scrimmage a couple of the club teams that's what i don't understand they they allowed to practice at the parks 
and with with full pads. They already have games scheduled. They went to the mainland, yet they can't play for their high schools. So the ILH, we're lucky that we can, and we need to have that in 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 all sports. Uh, it's hard to go a whole year or year and a half and not have football. Uh, you know, we lost the seniors, and then you lose the junior class that can't play, that'll be seniors uh, or seniors now that didn't get their chance. So you, you are ready for the next possible season. We're looking at young guys, the, the junior varsity guys that don't have any playing time. So what we're doing now with the scrimmages and playing against each other, that really helps us get ready for next season. And hopefully that we'll get back to the normal normal season, which is past league in July and the games in August. So that's what I'm hoping for. And bringing the public school back with the, and combine the ILH and the OIA. So that's hopefully what's going to happen. The tough part is there have been sort of mixed direction, if you will, for, for different entities, whether it's the private schools, the public schools, what the city will allow, um, you know, and, and things of that nature. And so, you know, for, 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 for St. Louis in particular, you know, you, you guys have been on campus in terms of learning school-wise for, for a bit. Is that, has that been a, a key part of, of actually getting the sports going as well? Well, I think it, it really starts, in a, especially for football, in a normal situation. Um, you know, the, the, the kids work very hard, you know, they, uh, not just in football, but kind of takes it up to an upper campus towards the academic. You know, I saw a lot of kids around the uh, uh, athletics department just kind of dragging around until we started to get things going again. It's a whole different spirit now on campus that the kids have, baseball's going, football's going, uh, volleyball, everything's starting up track. It's like a regular school year now, except it's all bunched into the last couple of months. But the kids, the kids are enjoying that. And and it's, it, it, it translates to the, a lot of them are back in the classroom, going to class because they, you know, it's easier for them at school and practice. We, we don't waste time. As soon as school's over, they're down to the practice field and we get practice started. We basically stay out for an hour and a half and then, and then they're released. So we, things move pretty good now. And, but I, I like the normalcy at St. Louis right now, the way things are going. So that'll, we'll be ready to go uh, for next season very easily because we already know our personnel we we lost a lot of a lot of seniors and juniors that are seniors now uh, this season so we have a nice little jump on what we what we plan on doing for next season what also makes st louis so unique is as you sort of alluded to i mean it is a program that is loaded with players who have the aspiration of playing at the collegiate level, who have the ability of garnering a scholarship to further their education at the next level. Uh, and so, you know, these guys haven't been able to display their talents in the same way as other years and other classes. So uh, it gives us a chance to see these guys on the field. Who are some of the players and names that you think that you think people will be excited to see? Yeah, well, right now we have, especially on offense, 
we really uh, we lost uh, you know a lot of receivers, our quarterbacks, a uh, couple of old linemen. So we took a big hit on the offensive side. But we have Connor Paul, who was a backup. He was a backup quarterback for Delara uh, 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 for two years. This was his shot. And, and he's very similar to Chef Caldera. That I, if he had a full season, he, was, he and uh, A.J. Bianco, Kahi uh, Graham, we got three outstanding QBs. But Connors is doing a, a heck of a job. This, this was his year. And, and then it shuts down. So I feel especially bad for him. A couple of the outside receivers, uh, uh, Keanu Wallace, who is the, possibly the fastest kid in the state, right behind Roman uh, Wilson. And he doesn't get a chance. So, and that kind of goes on and on saying, with a lot of the guys on the defensive side. They didn't get a season where they have a chance. So this, they practice with us. We, 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 they take a lot of reps. They put in their, their highlight tapes together to send to these colleges. So this has been tremendous for them because they wait for their turn and then they don't get it. It feels bad for them, but, uh, but, they are getting looks, and, and, and then the, the colleges, the colleges also shut down. They've given everybody another year. So they're really not out hustling for recruits because everybody gets an extra year. So they don't have that many scholarships to give out. So it makes it really tough for the, not just the seniors uh, uh, coming in, but also for the underclassmen. And the colleges, the coaches can't even go out now. So by us, uh, our administration allowing us to at least practice and scrimmage, that is something that is really helpful that they can take films and, and send these highlight, their highlight tapes to these colleges. You know, this is a class of, of athlete that, as you mentioned, uh, they're sort of getting burned on both ends, right? They don't have the opportunity to show themselves as much as other years traditionally. Uh, and you have colleges that don't have as many open spots because of the rollover eligibility-wise there. So as the head coach or as a member of the coaching staff, do you guys you know, take on some of the responsibility of trying to get exposure for these guys here, uh, at least up to this point? Yes. You know, Cal and I uh, – meet with all of the, the seniors coming in and get an idea of where they're interested in. Uh, and then we call the coaches. We make, we contact the schools that, and that, that's helpful. At least they are aware. But, but the problem is right now, after the signing, there's not a lot of schools that have scholarships available. So it's really, uh, a lot of it is going to be walk-ons. They can get at least a chance to compete. Like Connors, uh, we talked to several schools and, you know, he, he's not Tua, and, uh, but he's, you know, we've sent, we're fortunate enough to send uh, three quarterbacks in the last six years to, you know, college. And not just, uh, they were also starters as freshmen. Connors is in the same boat. Uh, he could play at a school that throws the ball, does a lot of read options and things like that because he's smart. 
And uh, really, uh, football IQ is very high. He just needs a chance. So finding a school that's looking for somebody like that, I think uh, he'll have a shot because I think he'll be. He's very similar to Chef Caldera and uh, uh, Jay uh, Delara. So, but he doesn't, you know, he's not playing. He was a backup for two years, but he's, he knows, he knows the passing game and he can run. So I'm just hoping, and, and there's several other, we got some really outstanding receivers. We, Roman went to Michigan, Wilson and, and uh, Kowali is at UH and uh, Matt Sykes at UCLA and they all play. And we have three other receivers now that I know can play in Division One, but they don't get the, they didn't get the shot, which I feel awful about for them. So they're working hard and we, we let them, we will let them play in the scrimmages so they can get some highlight and hopefully, hopefully these uh, colleges will start coming over in mid-April when we're practicing and at least take a look at some of these guys. So, uh, there's still hope, and we, we're putting film together to send out for these guys. They're all good students. They all admitted to, to, uh, to these colleges, but now they're just kind of looking for a chance to get on the football field. Yeah, at least a little something, right, some of this tape. We, we, we saw a lot of kids leave in the fall to go to the mainland and play. Um, you know, when, when some of those states were having a fall season, we've seen sort of a second wave of kids leave. Uh, to go to states like Washington, which are playing spring football, California maybe even, uh, that are playing spring football. Did, did you guys lose anybody? What did you make of sort of, you know, the the wave of kids that have, have just taken a shot at the mainland with, with Hawaii not really having any real season? Well, when everything was shut down, we did have some kids that went into, uh, you know, a lot of the private schools went on a mainland trip uh, and played a couple games. Uh, but uh, as soon as we were we started our workouts, then the kids have needed to make a decision whether they play for us or play for the club. And most of the kids, uh, are right, like right now, I think a hundred percent are with with us practicing. And the the nice thing is that we do have some games to look forward to, so they don't need to go to the mainland. Uh, a lot a lot of the public schools because they, they're not allowed or they weren't allowed to even practice. That's why they went on the, that's why clubs doing a, a, a lot of football because these kids are looking for exposure. And and a lot of them went to the mainland because there was nothing here. Uh, and, and right now it's chaos with the club and the high school. And some of the uh, public school coaches are having a hard time finding the guys. Uh, so it's because of this. It's almost like there's no guidance. Everybody's all over the place, and kids playing here. When, when, uh, some schools are with pads, some are not. It's like who's making the decisions? Now, ILH, we're going with everybody. Uh, so it's a little different between the ILH and uh, the public schools right now. Yeah, last one for me, Coach. Uh, how different has it been sort of being the head guy now that, that, that you and, and Cal have, I don't know if switched roles is the right way to put it, but, but since you have taken over the program and 
I mean, I can't believe, I imagine it's easy, right? You sort of take over, then the pandemic hits, right? And all everything's chaos, right? And I don't, I don't know if your brother was like, well, okay, yeah, now you get to deal with all of that. But hey, how's it been since, you know, you, you sort of made the transition to the head seat? Well, you know, Cal always had great timing. And he, and he decided to take a break, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it was perfect for him. A lot of the COVID now takes up a lot of my time. And, and administrative stuff, academics, uh, working with the faculty and the, keeping the kids great. That's what Cal did for a long time. So, you know, I think he just needed a break. As far as football, you know, I still focus on, on offense. And he, he, now he can really focus more on the, on the defensive side. He knows that we took a... We took a tremendous hit on, on graduation last season on the defensive side. Uh, not just a lot of seniors, but I think all there was at least ten of the starters on defense all went to Division One, and not I mean to the Pac-12, uh, to the top schools in the Pac-12, Michigan. Uh, Newton, uh, Herbig went to uh, Wisconsin, and they all played Botello. So we lost a lot of really outstanding athletes. So Cal's got his work cut out for him. Uh, he needs to. He's got a. He's got a really young, young uh, group that he has to work with. He's got to do some coaching. Last season he didn't have to do much. The guys he had, he knows this season. He's got to step it up, and that's good that I, I took a little bit off of him as far as administrative stuff. But uh, I have to watch budget our time, too, because of uh, all these other stuff. But, but it's going to be a really interesting and challenging season. So, you know, right now, I just told him this yesterday, at least I'm undefeated after this. <laughs> <laughs> so... So we're okay till next season, but uh, we have, you know, high callous set, high standards, high standards here. So there's a lot of pressure on us keeping this thing going, but uh, we'll see what happens. Well, the Lee family has had such an impact on Hawaii football. It's, it's, it's amazing. And the fact that you and Cal have built this relationship that has been so strong and so united for so many years, uh, it really is remarkable. I wonder, though, you know, going back to the early days or even, you know, as it evolved into the present time, uh, did you guys ever snap at each other? Like, was there ever any, like, bickering between you and Cal? Like, did you guys ever, ever butt heads in that way? Yeah, we, we you know, it's not, not a snap at things, but, you know, it's, it's – he always – throws his two cents in. You know, when, you want, <laughs> when you're coaching defense, you want a lot of touchdowns. You, you, want, you want the pressure off. When you're on the offensive side, you're hoping that they shut everybody down. So it's that kind of thing. So I always, you know, on the offensive side, always worried about, geez, you know, that doesn't look good. You got to make sure, you know, <laughs> hold them to a field goal at least then. So, you know, you... You know, we discuss stuff like that. You know, he's always got his two cents and uh, what we should do, you know, we should do this, this that we discuss. But but it's good. You know, I pick up a lot of his ideas on, on you know, maybe we throw in too much. 
he should run. You know, Cal's more the physical. He's a physical coach. I mean, the kids at St. Louis, they play physical. And and uh, it's always been defense with us. I played defense in high school and college. So, you know, it, where we've been together, it's always been defense first. But uh, he's never happy that until, you know, and all the coaches. Now, the, the problem that we had on offense is that we normally have close to 100 kids. And we play almost everybody every game. So the coaches on the defensive side, the first thing they tell you as we get in on the bus, score a lot fast. <laughs> it's not that easy. <laughs> but they want us to score so they can do things on defense, but mainly play a lot of guys. And we want that too. But everybody's, you know, it's not that easy. It's tough. So, so you get that kind of stuff and, and I'm the same way. As long as you guys get us the ball, you know, and, and uh, that's how it is at St. Louis. The practices, you know, are so competitive that, I mean, I, even as an assistant, I had to get it. We, the problem we have among our staff is telling those guys, hey, take it easy. I mean, they're whacking our receivers. After our quarterbacks, you know, it's it's really we, – we try to go about 20 plays, 11 on 11. And it's full on. It's, so we started to go with just shells, no pants. We kind of – it got worse. <laughs> it got worse. So we have, now we have to use pants for their protection. But that's what helps us, I think, the competition. It's so intense. And it's personal, too, with the coaches. You know, when we score, it's a, we hoop it up. When they get a turnover, make a stop, they hoop. You know, and that's good. That's, that's, we want to be intense and, and, and play at a high level in practice. Then it's easy on, on game day. That's really awesome stuff. You guys are definitely the first family of prep football uh, in the islands. And, uh, hey, Coach, we appreciate it. It's great talking with you. Uh, thanks for giving us so much uh, of your time. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right, big thanks once again to Ron Lee for joining us. Always a pleasure talking with my man. And best of luck to the Crusaders uh, in these games that are coming up. Uh, all the players, hopefully they're able to show some stuff. Uh, and let's uh, definitely hope that nobody gets hurt in the process either. All right, time for our post game. Best and Worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial, construction, and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit WasteProHawaii.com for services information. All right, Jordan, we got to fly through these. What's your best? Yeah, my best, uh, one of your alma maters, Hawaii Pacific University, this announced they've got an apparel deal with Nike. I love it. I love it. They're going to look pretty fly. The new shark branding, right? They got the Nike swoosh. Uh, my only question is, can you get us some swag? Oh, I am going to exhaust every possible channel and connection I can to try to get me some Nike HPU shark swag. Yeah, give me the double X. Just give me the double <laughs> X. A little sweater, you know, pullover, golf shirt. Look good on the links, man. All right. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm definitely in the in the hunt and the market for that. Let's do it. I'll take whatever I can get. Give me a pair of the basketball shorts. I don't care. Uh, I'm just down for some HPU swag as an alum. Proud alum.
All right, my best, uh, I'm going to switch gears completely here. You know I'm a big DC Comics geek uh, on HBO Max. It was a big deal, the debut and premiere of the Snyder Cut Justice League movie, four hours long, the true vision of director Zack Snyder for the DC Universe. And I got to say, this thing was badass. It was an incredible movie, four hours. It is a commitment. You watch it in parts, I think that would be the best thing to do. Uh, but that said, uh, it was worth the weight and Zack Snyder I think may have resurrected the DC universe we'll see what they do going forward but uh yeah as a DC fan uh big time props to the Snyder Cut loved it I've been holding out on the HBO Max but I think I'm gonna give in pretty soon plus Kong versus Godzilla's dropping in a bit on HBO yeah. Max I'm I'm all about that yeah that's right uh Academy Award alert all right what's your worst <laughs> yeah, my worst. Uh, much more serious and obviously a bit more melancholy. Elgin Baylor passing away just the other day. I, I mean, it's been said, but I really think he might be the most underrated superstar in NBA history. I mean, the guy is so unappreciated or underappreciated. You know, maybe everybody gets bogged down by the memory of him running the Clippers, which he wasn't very good at. But it doesn't take anything away from the fact that as a basketball player, I mean, he's one of the best, one of the best you know, I mean, the guy averaged 27 and 13 and a half rebounds for his career. Like, those are his career numbers. You know, in a leg injury late in his career, he retired, right, uh, like nine games into that 71-72 season, never won a championship. That downgrades him a little bit in a lot of people's minds. But, man, he, the numbers are undeniable. Like, his run early in his career, 29 a game, 34 a game, 38 a game in 48 games when he was an Army reservist who could only play on weekends. So he was limited to 48 games, couldn't practice at all, had to fly coach wherever he was going in the middle of, you know, overtly racist America. And he averaged 38 points and 18 rebounds a game that year. He couldn't practice. He only could play on weekends. The guy was amazing. And I think he gets lost in the, in the discussion. One of the guys who is credited really doesn't get maybe enough mainstream credit, but a guy who was talked about as maybe being the first of the high flyer era, mm -hmm. right? Like paved the way for guys like Dr. J and George Gervin moving into Michael Jordan and, and sort of the brand of basketball player that played above the rim that we saw with regularity since. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. That's a good one. Mine uh, is much more ridiculous. My worst is uh, Draymond Green. Uh, who has outwardly, openly said that he's the greatest defender in NBA history. Tony Allen has clapped back at him on social media. Everybody else has sort of come down on him. I don't even know if I would have him in my top 10 of all-time NBA defenders. Uh, I don't know what it is about this generation of players. You got LeBron saying that he should have won more MVPs, which is probably right, but it's not necessarily something that you, you go around saying. Draymond Green saying he's the greatest defender of all time. Uh, it's just really, really strange, man. Uh, I'm not sure... Uh, where Draymond's coming from and what he's trying to accomplish here. Uh, but that's definitely my worst. I wish people could see my face just sort of shaking my head. Like, it's absurd. It's absurd. He's not even close to the best defender in NBA history. Yeah. You could argue I mean, like, Andre Iguodala's a better defender who he played with. I know not necessarily at the peak of his powers. Oh, I can guard one through five. He couldn't guard Shaq. Has he ever heard of Dennis Rodman? Has he ever heard of Ben Wallace? Has he ever heard of David Robinson? Bill Russell? All right, Michael you get the Cooper. Point. Yeah, you know, Tony Allen took some real, real offense to that, by the way. And yeah. I loved it. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, that was pretty great. That was a great back and forth. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waze Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. That's it for us. Big thanks again to Ron Lee for joining us. Jordan, we'll do it again soon. See you, man.